Pharmacy costs are skyrocketing. But is part of the overall pharmacy spend avoidable using a simple-to-administer and relatively cost-effective test? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. We've spent a lot of time on the podcast in episodes past talking about drugs, the amount of pharma spend that's going on that's driving prices up through the roof, and it seems only to be getting worse. And surely the cost of the actual drugs themselves is a large component. But I think a lot of folks may be under the impression that finding cheaper drugs is the only way to get your arms around that problem and to to try to bring costs down. And there is a field called pharmacogenomics that can be very helpful in a myriad of other ways. And if those of you who don't know what pharmacogenomics is, as I did not a couple of months ago, you will soon because we're pleased to have Joe Spinelli, who's chief commercial officer for the MedTech 21 platform with us. And Joe knows a lot about it. So with that, welcome, Joe. David, thank you so much. Great to be here today. We appreciate you taking the time. Level set for us. I mean, I'm guessing most people are not really aware of what pharmacogenomics is in simple terms. What is it? Sure thing. The easiest way to think about pharmacogenomics is it is the study of answering a very simple question. And that simple question is, are the medications that you are prescribed actually right for you as an individual based on how you process those medications? So the study is really about understanding the genetic pathways that are sensitive to different levels of an individual processing those medications, as well as identifying potential side effects that may arise from medications that might be improper for somebody based purely on how they process them as an individual. It's interesting because, well, as I mentioned at the open, a lot of folks may not have heard about this. It's actually something that's been around and in use for over a decade. Why hasn't it caught on more widely? Yeah, great question. The science of pharmacogenomics is based on an analysis of SNPs of your genetic information. And as most folks in the audience might understand or appreciate, over the last decade, we've seen a really fundamental shift in the cost effectiveness of being able to run gene sequencing. So whereas a decade ago, it might have cost you thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to run the analysis and assays that were required to get a set of information about how these medications might work for you. Nowadays, we, that cost has come down precipitously. And, and even in the last four years, you've seen analyses on pharmacogenomics go from thousands of dollars to hundreds of dollars. So it's not free just yet, but it's been widely democratized. And so it's opening up this whole new paradigm for using it in a cost-effective manner when we're thinking about how to improve outcomes and care for individuals. What's the potential? How big is the problem? And what does it look like in terms of being able to impact cost? 
Sure. So there's a couple of things to think about when we look at cost effectiveness of a pharmacogenetic program. The most logical one is helping to identify whether or not someone is on a med that they shouldn't be in the first place. So for example, you might be taking a med to help manage a heart condition, an anticoagulant. That medication may not be right for you. It may not be working any better than a placebo. So in some cases, that means we're going to switch you to a med that's more effective. And there may be some cost savings associated with that. But where the bigger impact can be within a broader ecosystem is, well, if that drug was not actually working for somebody, that means that person is at risk of side effects. They're at risk in elderly situations of falls. They're at risks of rehospitalizations, And all of those are incredibly costly. So while I don't want to discount the value of being able to modify and adjust meds by getting people off medications that aren't effective or reducing the number of medications they're taking, there's also a very large economic benefit by helping to prevent very costly and dangerous side effects associated with medications. And just to kind of give an example of this, what has been statistically found is about one in 10 chronic care cases of individuals will have some sort of medication-related adverse event typically within the first 30 days of being treated in a facility. And that's pretty staggering. So that's basically 10% of the population that's now starting a treatment is going to have an issue. And adverse drug events are the fourth leading cause of preventable death here in the United States. So it's only becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue over time. Now, you break down the known clinical interactions into three basic classes. Let's, let's examine them a little bit. There's drug to drug, drug to allergy, and drug to gene. Talk about those for a second. Sure. So most people are somewhat familiar with the concept of a drug-to-drug interaction. The most common one they've probably heard from their doctor is some medications, for example, are sensitive if you have a glass of grapefruit or orange juice when you take them. And you know, that's kind of the most basic level. There's a chemical issue that's going to impact drug efficacy. Those also become more complicated when you take two or more drugs that may counteract them differently. That science is, is pretty well known, well healed, and it's actually regulated that a pharmacist or a clinician analyzes two medications for drug interaction risks when, they, when they're prescribed. So there's a very well healed workflow for that. Drug to allergy is kind of in the same pathway where we we know someone's allergic to penicillin, for example. So we want to make sure that at all points in the care ecosystem, someone can understand that, all right, this individual does have a drug to allergy issue. We need to make sure that no one ever fills a script or a prescription for that individual. Drug to gene operates very similar in the same two pathways. The only difference is it's going to vary by individual. And it's not necessarily based on something that's chemically known or even known to the patient. And it may change and evolve over time, not only as new medications come to market, but as new insights around a person's genome come to light. So we're, we're kind of at the forefront of utilizing drug to gene risk warnings. And there's a number of medications where they're starting to be used more regularly, but it, it does represent kind of a really interesting frontier in truly personalizing medication. How much of a metabolic difference do you see patient to patient? It will vary widely. Some studies that have started to come out, which are really indicative, is in situations where a pharmacogenetic analysis is run for an individual at birth. So basically, the minute you're born, we're going to do a simple cheek swab of of that baby, and we're going to run an analysis on their genetic profile. So we know the day they're born, all the medications that they should watch out for and ones that they're going to be fine processing. And what's been found is anywhere between 95 and 98% of those individuals who've been tested are found to have at least one form of a genetic mutation that might impact 
the way that a medication is prescribed for them at some point in their life. So generally speaking, all of us are going to likely have one or two meds at a minimum that will probably not work for us as well as expected to somebody who processes or metabolizes that drug normally. When you start getting into the brass tacks of, okay, what does this mean in the real world? Because that's what we really care about. We find in elder care populations, for example, and, and I keep pointing to that one because it's, a, it's an interesting case study. Most folks that are in some sort of long-term care facility are on an average of 10 or more medications. So there's a huge risk of potential polypharmacy issues. And we find in that population, about 60 to 70% of those individuals will have some sort of actionable guidance that will actually impact the care they are already getting. So if we take both ends of that spectrum, we know day one that individuals have a proclivity for getting benefit from this. And then we see at the other end of the care spectrum, it actually playing out that a majority of people will at some point in their life benefit from understanding this kind of analysis. We talk a lot about physical health, but it isn't just physical health. It's, it's all the ranges of care that drugs interact with. There's been some interesting usage around SSRIs for mental health and, and ADHD as well. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and that's one of the more complex cases to treat for individuals. We, we, we kind of joke a little bit about it, but it's, it's no laughing matter. When someone starts a behavioral health journey and they, they go to the doctor to, to seek treatment, that doctor will typically have a standard prescribing regimen, and they're going to have a starter med that they would prefer to use and a starter dose that they would, they would recommend for this individual. And that's honed based on years of experience and a standard of care. Another word for experience and standard of care is guessing. Well, we think this is going to work for you, but come back in a couple of weeks and, and let us know how you feel. And then maybe we're going to throw you on a different med or we're going to adjust the dose and we're going to see how you feel. And there's a lot of different chemical and metabolic pathway implications when you're starting a behavioral health treatment. But one of the really neat things about pharmacogenomics, particularly in that classification of medications, is while it may not be able to solve everything day one, what it certainly can do is give the clinician and the patient a divining rod to say, okay, here are the categories of medications that we know are going to at least be processed or metabolized by your body well. So let's start over here in this category and see how you respond to these and see all these other meds over here on, in this list. Based on how your body processes them, you're not likely to get any benefit from those. So let's avoid those. And we've seen real world examples of this play out where individuals have suffered for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months, not getting any therapeutic benefit from trying all these drugs. And so not only is there a cost impact there, but you know, put yourself in the shoes of that individual. They have now been suffering for months and, and really kind of getting even worse because the, the symptoms haven't exacerbated. So by having this analysis, we can now write that person and get them on the right course of meds. And in a couple of the studies that we've seen, the difference was eight to 10 months of no benefit, getting a pharmacogenetic benefit, and that individual then having their symptoms really under control in, in under six to eight weeks. So that's a really dramatic improvement in care. And so what's happening is as this information and insight is, is getting more broadly accepted by the medical community, doctors who maybe at one point were skeptical of saying, okay, don't come in and, and tell me how to do my job. They're really seeing this more not as a mandatory or information system that is trying to you know, basically override their judgment, but it's really helping to give them a tool to say, okay, why don't we start in this pathway? And so that's why we're seeing so much great adoption, particularly in the behavioral health world. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years' experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. 
And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health Solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. I I can kind of wrap my head around how you might implement that on a one-on-one basis. But how do you scale that to groups of 500 or 1,000 or or 5,000? What are the components of this? How does it get implemented? What does it look like? Well, David, that's really the the interesting point of what's been happening in this space. For, For all the promise of this concept of personalizing medicine, there hasn't been, up until recently, a lot of endeavors to scale it effectively. So if you think about how a pharmacogenetic analysis is typically done or has been historically done, an individual will, will work with their care provider to get this test done. It's a simple cheek swab. It takes about 30 seconds. Gets sent off to a lab for an analysis, and that lab will send back a report. Well, that report is, generally speaking, somewhere between 40 and 60 pages in length. It's going to have a number of different things in it that will help guide the treatment for that individual, but not all of it's really relevant. And put yourself in the shoes of a doctor. You've got five minutes, maybe 10 minutes to interact with a patient. And before you're going to prescribe something, every time you're going to go consult a 40 or 50 page report, it just doesn't really work at scale. So so it's been reserved historically for folks that are the most complex cases. What we're now starting to see, and this is one of the things our medtech platform has been working on, is streamlining this workflow. So we're not just presenting you know, the full, broad report on an individual, but we're helping to highlight the two or three things that matter for them, either based on the medications they're already taking or the medications they're about to be prescribed. So the holy grail for this space as we see it is when you go to the doctor and Now, all of a sudden, you are going to be taking a medication for a cardiac symptom that you were not taking before. In advance of that provider giving you that script, they can automatically query that med and see whether or not it's going to work well for you or not based on how your body will process it. And your doctor can take that under advisement before they even prescribe anything. So what we're seeing is that shift away from, here's all the information, go figure it out. And that, you know, as you'd expect, hasn't been widely adopted to, Here's the very tactical information you need for every single patient you see, and let's go get ahead of any issues before they arise. If you do a larger group, do you gain scale in pricing? Absolutely. Most laboratory diagnostic companies and, and anyone who's in you know, most economic spaces will you know, show you and illustrate that there's a benefit. But what's really interesting is not only on the, the pricing of the, the inputs themselves, it's really about the benefit that you get over time. If you're managing a population of 50 or 100 people, one of the benefits to the software platform or to an analysis platform might be, hey, we're, we're going to bet that we'll, we'll get ahead of one or two hospitalizations a year. When your sample size is low, you, 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 the confidence interval in being able to impact that is, is harder, right? You know, I may have two hospitalizations in that pool this year. I may not. 
when you start working in thousands, you're able to extrapolate many more conclusions that are statistically relevant. And so that allows you to have a lot more confidence in not only this being beneficial to an entire population, but being really economically viable. And the other piece to it is when you're working in a larger population, what you can do is risk score individuals based on the meds they're already taking or the symptoms that they're already illustrating. And based on those, you're able to run a program that says, I'm going to get my biggest bang for my buck by going to really focus on interventions for this subset of my population. So I don't have to go test everybody. I can offer it if they'd like to use it, but I don't have to really focus my cost and effort except in this little area over here. So it makes it a lot more tangible when you start working with, with bigger populations. Do you think that as the industry slowly moves to incentive-based comp for providers and also maybe bundled pricing, that it will be a shot in the arm for wider adoption for this because there's, there's clearly less margin for error and better outcomes? Well, that's kind of what we see happening. And what's been going on in the space to date is you have to take a step back and say, okay, who in this ecosystem is incented to keep things the way they are? And who in this ecosystem is incented to really get ahead and proactively change this? And so where we've seen the, the broadest adoption of this are the places where they already do see a direct through line to the economic benefit. So for example, in that long-term care space, the long-term care facilities and their pharmacies get dinged when there's a hospitalization or there's a fall or there's poor pain management. Not to mention that they do have fairly large population where they're just throwing meds at them and they're using a standard of care and they're hoping it's right. So where they do have models where they are now taking on some of the cost share and the risk share for the overall outcomes of those patients, having another tool in the tool bag that can create a whole nother subset of care improvement where it doesn't take much more time because it's, it's the information is being presented in real time to them is a real big shot in the arm for them. Same thing goes for populations of employer groups that self-insure. You know, they are taking on the risk of those hospitalizations. And so if we can help point them to the people that are most at risk for those hospitalizations and then run those analyses for those individuals, it goes a long way to making this economically viable. Now, where it gets adopted by the PBMs and the payers and the health systems, it all really depends on where and how they get enveloped into that ecosystem. So just like everything in the healthcare space, you have to kind of focus on where the actual economic benefit is first and foremost, and then it'll, it'll expand out to the broader sectors of the, uh, the care ecosystem. Is there any data that, that indicates that you get better adherence when you're using these kinds of programs? People are on drugs that are automatically or more likely, let's say, automatically to be efficacious. And does, we talked about adherence as a problem on the podcast before. Does this improve that? Absolutely. And there's, there's a couple of reasons for it. But just to answer the question directly, there have been a number of published studies that have shown 10 to 20% lift in med adherence for certain populations that use this. And one of the examples that is really kind of best exemplifying the total benefit and promise of this is back to our behavioral health example. So you've been under treatments for months, if not years, your doctors have switched you between all these different meds and you're, you're getting kind of fatigued by, okay, I keep taking these meds and I don't feel better. I, I kind of feel hopeless. So now all of a sudden you have something as a tool in pharmacogenomics that can help tell you, hey, we are now putting you on a medication that we know at least from a metabolic perspective is more likely to work for you with less side effects. So it's going to allow a patient who might have not wanted to stay the course and said, hey, I gave it a week and eh, forget it to really say, okay, we know that your body processes this met effectively, but we also know that it does take you longer to build up 
the appropriate amount in your system to work right. So you do need to give it patience. And having that reassurance can go a long way to helping a patient stay the course with a medication therapy. And what, what kind of pricing mechanism is in play for this? Is it, is it a per utilizer? Is it a cost for the platform and the tests are plus or I mean, what, what does that look like? If I'm going to talk to an employer, how do I emphasize that cost benefit ratio? How do I explain that? Yeah, there's a number of ways to think about it depending on how broadly it gets rolled out. But in its simplest form, there is a model for the the, the software-based monitoring, risk scoring, proactive management of that population, it is relatively nominal. The largest cost for an employer who's self-insuring right now is the cost of that diagnostic test. And again, that's gone from thousands to hundreds of dollars, and it's going to keep going down over time. So when we think about designing an ROI program for an employer group, you want to look at the overall balance of the system, and you want to use that, a preliminary risk analysis to say, okay, here's the subset of your population that we want to go after. And depending on how sick or healthy that population is, you may want to target as little as 10% of your population. You may want to target as much as 25 to 30% of your population. And then you assume a number of different metrics around the utilization rate of those tests, how much the company chooses to subsidize that cost versus pass it on to the employee. And depending on that risk score, they may say, hey, if you're in a higher risk score because we're on the hook for it, if you get sick, we, we may want to help an individual out more. And so you take all those inputs and you design, at the end of the day, a balance of system costs that says, hey, for everybody that you guys are covering, it's X dollars PM PM to run this whole system. And there's Y dollars of benefit. And the Y dollars comes out through an analysis of historical claims data, as well as other statistics that the employer group will typically keep around med adherence, benefits by seeing a proactive doctor visit, absenteeism losses, particularly around the behavioral health cases. So I know that's a little bit of a long and complex answer. Like a lot of things in this world, to, to get a true ROI requires you to look at all those elements. But one of the great things about running personalized medicine at scale is that you do get access to the data. You can actually see who's been prescribed what meds, what alerts there were, and what was done about them. And that has a direct pathway to understanding whether or not there is true benefit to this kind of program. One last question before we wrap up, which is how then, if, it's, if this is an employer-driven benefit, quote unquote, how do the physicians get looped in? Yeah, that's a great question. So depending on how engaged the provider network is within that employer, the levels of engagement and the methodologies for engagement will vary. The best example or the best use case is if you are an organization that has an on-site clinic or a network that's very tightly wound into your organization, it's a real home run to run this because you already have ongoing intervention programs. You already have a really good level of engagement. For organizations that are more scattered, not only in terms of their employee footprint, but how they go to get care, the model to that employee looks a lot more like a direct-to-consumer type model. So there's a lot of member education, there's test kits that are sent directly to them, and there's webinar programs and other engagement that happens there, not only with the member, but within their care provider. So those workflows are, are pretty well established. They're a little bit complicated and they require a little bit of a specialty knowledge to do right. But, you know, basically you empower the member, but the member's care provider is also going to be notified with this and then they have a full supported infrastructure. So if they have questions on this analysis, they know who to go to so they don't have to interpret it in a vacuum. Uh, a fascinating explanation. Joe Spinelli, Chief Commercial Officer for the MedTech 21 platform. Joe, thank you so much for explaining this really interesting benefit to us. Well, thanks so much, David. Really enjoyed it. 
The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. Thank you.